Hello again. Hello. This is exciting, isn't it? I know, not bad. Series three. To think this is our little lockdown project that we thought we'd get bored with in about two weeks. Yes, absolutely. And not only are we not bored with it, we've actually got an audience who seems quite eager to have us back as well. So that's nice. We have. And we have our lovely producer, Russell, back. Thank you, Russell. Always a fan of Russell's work. He's Oz behind the curtain. Shall we like share what we've been up to? Because it seems like a sensible thing to tell people why we've been absent. Mainly there was a lockdown where I had yeah. to homeschool my children and I had no headspace for anything else uh, apart from the kids comedy show. And you got nominated for an award for it. So that is I did. Thank you. Yes. Schools Out Comedy Club was nominated for Best Children's Show at the Leicester Comedy Festival. Didn't win, but that's OK. Aww. It was lovely, actually. We I did about 45 live shows on Zoom over lockdown. So it was great. Did your kids watch it? No. <laughs> no, they, they, seriously, they could not be less interested if they try i think to be honest they'd had enough of me with the homeschooling so for them it was a nice chance to grab some tv time it would be like detention yeah it did feel quite weird leaving them to watch tv whilst i went into the next room to entertain other people's children how are you so i've been working on a new show concept it's called just ask your jewish mother already where i answer any question that the audience want to ask me as their jewish mother because i believe jewish mothers always have the answer to everything and it's been a lot of fun brilliant i did see one of the live shows that you did i think the first one maybe uh it was very good the answers you came up with were spontaneous and funny and interesting oh thanks mate aiming to be entertaining <laughs> hey, don't, don't worry you you write it i say it it's fine <laughs> i had my jab mazel tov thank you i'm brushing up on my russian as we speak dulce <laughs> <laughs> Is that a word? Does that mean something? Yes. Um, but now we're focusing on this and we've got such brilliant guests and I'm really, really excited. And uh, it's going to be fun, I think. Each week we're going to add a topic that we're going to discuss on social media. and We'd love it if everybody got involved. Yeah, so listen out for that during the show and you'll find out more information. This week we have the amazing sitcom writers, Marks and Gran, which was so exciting because we are both massive fans of their work. Big fans. Grew up watching Birds of a Feather, Goodnight Sweethearts. And I think our listeners will be excited also to hear an exclusive bit of news coming up. Let's get on with the show. This episode of Jew Talking to Me was recorded under lockdown conditions. Hello, I'm Rachel Krieger. And I'm Philip Simon. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm orthodox, so on my Passover Seder plate, I had a hard-boiled egg. And I'm reform, so on mine, I had an Easter egg. This chat show is the Jewish audio equivalent of ITV's This Morning, except he's Philip and I'm holy. In each episode, we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they chocolate matzahs or just plain crackers? Welcome to series three of Jew Talking to Me. Let's introduce our guests. They're one of the UK's most prolific comedy writing duos, perhaps best known for television hits, Birds of a Feather, Love Hurts and Goodnight Sweetheart. But when we asked them how they wanted us to introduce them, they said they were up and coming forensic accountants. It's Lawrence Marks and Maurice Gran. Good evening. Hello. Good evening. Hello. An absolute pleasure to have you both with us. Thanks very much for joining us. Regular listeners to the podcast will know we always like to find out how our guests self-define as Jews. So you already know that Rachel's Orthodox and I'm Reform, but what kind of Jew are you? Morris, will you tell us a bit about growing up in your brand of Jewish home? 
I love everything about being Jewish except the religion. And I especially love the hats, particularly the big furry one, which I think is called a strimal. I like that. <laughs> what, when you said what sort of Jewish home did I grow up in, um, I was like normal, noisy, guilt-ridden, lots of cooking, lots of eating, lots of joke telling, lots of family gatherings. Family gatherings was where jokes were important. And I think I grew up listening to competitive joke telling from certain uncles and cousins. So maybe that's where I got the idea that jokes were a good thing, a sort of hard sport to not getting hit around the back of your head by Auntie Sadie for not standing up straight. <laughs> I really identify with that, actually, because it was like that in my family that after a Shabbat meal, if we all got together, as a family all the men would be competitively Jewish joke telling and I used to sit on the stairs outside and want to be in there telling the jokes. Is that the equivalent of like in non-Jewish households perhaps the men after dinner go off for a brandy and a cigar? Yes whereas Jews go off for a thimble full of cherry brandy and advocar. <laughs> I sitting on the stairs. I sat on the stairs at my own bar mitzvah. Did you? Like yeah, Kermit yeah. the Frog? I wasn't invited. Oh, that feels very tragic. Should we should we hold up a mitzvah for you now? Do you want to quickly do your laning? It was a bit tragic because what happened was after shul, all the relatives had come from far and wide. So they all mostly drove. We were united, so we parked a street away. And after the service, because we didn't have a car in my family, I was hoping I'd get a lift back home in one of my rich uncle's cars. They all thought it was appalling that I could expect a lift on Shabbat on my bar mitzvah, so they all drove off. The time I walked home, they were halfway through lunch. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm crying. In our house, because the other thing was, my sister was getting married the following month, so I couldn't have a bar mitzvah, so I just had, they just had lunch at the house. And I got back there, they took me into the sitting room to say thank you for all the presents, and then gave me a plate of fish balls and sat me on the stairs. What I find so amusing about Morris's bar mitzvah is that it fell on the day that we all imagined the world was going to end, which was the Cuban Missile Crisis Saturday, where had Kennedy not found a way out with Khrushchev, the bomb would have dropped that day. And yet Morris is the only person I know that wasn't affected by the greatest tragedy of the, could have been the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. I had plenty to worry about. I had my own tragedy. I'd also Sorry. broken my arm running for a bus on the way home from a mitzvah lesson. So it was a pretty woeful month altogether. It does sound like a very traumatic process, but at least you arrived at your own mitzvah halfway through the meal, which is very close to when they were going to start telling jokes. Yes, right. <laughs> And I can remember some of them, but I won't bore you with them now. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. And Lawrence, how about you? What sort of Jew are you? Well, as I would refer to myself as a Lat Hasid, had I lived in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century, but I didn't. I lived in a house where my mother was from an Orthodox family and my father was from a religious family. She was fanatically Jewish and my father wasn't. So there was a great rift between the two of them because he would encourage me on Saturday to go to the football with him and my mother would never forgive him for doing so. He'd pop into a betting shop on the way to have a bet on the horses, which she could never know about. You know, it was like he once had bacon, but she could never know about it. She kept a strictly kosher kitchen. No one was allowed in. That's why I can't cook because I was never allowed in the kitchen. When I went in to make a cup of tea, she would ask me what I was doing in the kitchen. And I would say, I've come to make a cup of tea. And she said, you go back into the lounge and I'll make you a cup of tea. So both my brother and I were completely useless in terms of culinary skills. 
So it was a strange house. There was always conflict in the house. And I, by the time I was permitsford, was the one in the middle of the conflict. My brother and sister were very, very much older than me, knew different parents in many ways. They knew younger pre-war parents, and I knew older post-war parents. So they'd gone and married and left home, and I was left there in this war between my mother, my father, and later my grandmother who came to live with me. And it was very religious. I mean, um, my father didn't go to synagogue every Saturday, but my mother kept every possible Jewish law there was to keep. So it was a strange Jewish household. You knew you were in a Jewish household, but my father, I suspect, tried to get me away from that to take part in the world outside, which had my mother been married to a man that was anything like her, I would have just been locked in and become that closet chassid that I half joke about. But of course, the greatest rift in our house was the changing times and that I was growing up, as was Morris, in the swinging 60s, in swinging London, five bus stops away from where London was swinging, with two Edwardian religious parents. What they wanted me to do more than anything else was be Mitzvah, because my brother wasn't because of the war, and he was evacuated. And so for them, the greatest thrill, or certainly my mother, was for me to stand on the podium in the synagogue and be permitted. I think it was probably one of the happiest days of her life. I'm so pleased we brought that up for you. I mean, now I can look back and laugh. Now I can look back and write about comedy. Right. Because everything that happened in that house eventually turned up somewhere in our work. Was that a conscious decision? Is that something that you and Morris would have spoken about? Morris, of course, knew my parents as I knew his. You know, we we were brought up together in the same place at the same time. My father, who was an ex-policeman, unusual for a Jew, was always the chairman of everything that involved youth in that part of North London. So I was roped into everything, and it was at the Jewish Lads Brigade that I met Morris. The JLB was a Jewish version of the Boys Brigade. It was founded in 1910, and it became quite popular after the war. The people who ran it were mostly Jewish former officers who wanted Jewish youth to have a sort of upright military bearing and stand up to black shirts at the age of 10 and three quarters. That was it. That's how we were taught to do, you know? Yeah, it still it still exists. It's now called the Jewish Lads and Lasses Brigade. Unfortunately, there were no lasses when I was involved. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I got court-martialed, so I never even went yeah, on. Lawrence was always being thrown out of things for dumb insolence, but they wouldn't let his father resign as chairman. I was advised not to be a brownie. I went along to the brownies on one occasion. They said they felt that I wasn't brownie material. I must, I must tell you a story in the, in the category of what kind of upbringing, what kind of Jew were you? At primary, no, junior school, I was found to have a very good soprano voice. And so during the run-up to Christmas, I was to lead the choir in Once in Royal David City. Very nice. Which was to be sung in a local church as a Christmas service. Well, of course, I never told my mother. I never told my mother anything. But my mother always found out everything. I'll tell you more about her. She was at Bletchley Park and nobody knew. Anyway, that aside, so come the day I'm there in this church. I've never been in a church in my life. And the teacher, the music teacher, then calls up the choir. And then I come forward and sing once in Royal David City. I got to Mary was a mother, mild Jesus Christ. And my mother marched down the aisle, pulled me by the arm, 
tubbed me the full length of the aisle and threw me out of the church. Wow. So that will give you some idea of what my mother was like. I mean, Jesus is obviously a good Jewish boy, but yeah. not everyone's cup of tea. Certainly not my mother. These are tough times that we're living through at the moment. So we always do like to check in with our guests and ask, what's the matter, Bubbler? So, Morris, how are you? Uh, mustn't grumble. <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a sort of personal level, I'm coping. And in fact, rather guiltily, COVID did Lawrence and me a favour because we had unexpected repeats of Birds with Feather. <laughs> because they were not making any new programmes and so suddenly we were, make, we were putting out old programmes. So, so last year, as you know, the only reason you become a comedy writer is for the day that one day you'll earn money without getting out of bed. Doesn't happen very often. All right, another thing I can grumble about is all the vets are closed and our cat really needs her claws cutting. Can't you do it? No, you can't cut a cat's claws without putting them under because they'll just rip you to shreds. Okay. And the furniture is not benefiting. That The cat has turned into Edward Scissorhands. I think this is how I feel every time my wife offers to give me a haircut. <laughs> uh, no, no, I will wait for the professionals <laughs> to be back. We've had a few trims. I actually bought a very sophisticated set of clippers at the beginning of the lockdown, but I've actually never had the nerve to take them out of the box. For the cat or for yourself? I could shave the cat bald, but it would still have clicky claws. <laughs> See, I didn't want to buy clippers because I kept feeling every time I thought about, I'll buy some clippers, then next week they'll lift lockdown like just going to get a haircut. I had several haircuts in the summer. In fact, I decided in the summer that if I had like a haircut every week instead of every month, I could get a head. But apparently it doesn't work like that. <laughs> Lawrence, what's the matter, Bubbler? Well, my big gripe, as Morris knows, is the misuse of the English language by people that should know better. I once said to Morris, why does our friend, Sasha, begin every sentence with the word so when I've, she's not begun the sentence? And I found that was spreading. That was like a minor epidemic. That really annoys me. And what annoys me most of all is when I get BBC presenters using the word issue when they mean challenge or problem. You know, we have a pandemic problem. We don't have a pandemic issue. And that really annoys me. And I just think to myself, these guys went to work for the BBC. They must have been journalists. They must have learned the craft of journalism. And yet they're unable to use the language properly. Now, that's interesting because that's the sort of thing my mother would have said. Oh, well, there you go, you see. So I'm becoming this dead woman, and that's worrying. <laughs> During the show? Very possibly. I have noticed this as well, especially what you're talking about with people starting sentences with the word so. And I think it's a podcast thing. Is it? I got very, very frustrated with until we started a podcast, and now I do it all the time. Also, this upward inflection interests me, where I was listening to particularly Americans talking about during the American presidential election, and everyone seemed to finish their sentence on an upward inflection. And I thought, why? It's meaningless. It's but Californian and Australian. It's that, uh, the cadence, yeah, yeah. an upward inflection. Well, why, why have we adopted it then? Because of Neighbours and Home and Away TV shows that all I the young see. people listen to. I think it's yeah. also, it seems a less confrontational way of putting things. <laughs> So people like to say, I think you're an idiot. I also have one other sort of, what's the matter, Bubba, is woke. The word or the concept? 
the concept because I think it's killed comedy. There's a lot of conversation about that at the moment. There is no question. When I go and see a stand-up and they can't say the things they really want to say or you're not allowed to write what you really want to write, then you realise that something has happened which has prevented comedy being rich and fulfilling. The changes to the protest laws imply that comedians are going to be restricted on what they talk about on stage because it could be seen as a protest. So even my material, which is gently shining a light to anti-Semitism, could be considered protest material and I could be in prison for 10 years and if that means that I don't have to think about what to cook for dinner or do the washing I'm, I'm kind of all right with it. When the restrictions are lifted will woke be flown in the face so to speak and you can say what you want? To know we'll find out. This bill is such a sort of dog's dinner. Frankly to start with the House of Laws will rip it to treads. It's a nonsense. But we're also worn out now. Mm. And everyone says, whatever. I can't take anything that's going on seriously because I think that the government is actually a piece of very bad performance art. When I read this stuff, I think, really? I'm a full-on Jewish mother. Whenever I meet people, my main concern is, have you eaten yet? I said that with an upward inflection. I don't know if that's going to really irritate Lawrence now. But what about your Jewish food memories or your favourite thing to eat? Morris, what about you? I like, you know, the whole Ashkenazi banquet from A to Z, with the exception of B. Borscht is not my thing. Oh, I agree with you. My mother's a pretty good cook. We ate pretty well. My father was not very good at eating, though. My main memory of my father was chasing his dentures round his mouth and choking on halibut bones. There was always a certain sort of jeopardy associated with mealtimes in our house, which gave it a certain frisson. And his health wasn't great, so my mother was always making him sort of halibut in lemon sauce. And, and he was always, there was always a bone involved. My father's family were from Russia, my mother's family were from Romania, and neither of those cultures commits the abomination of sugar in gefilte fish. That's a, something I'm grateful for. It, don't get it. It's like putting, it's like putting crane in cheesecake, isn't it? Putting... <laughs> and I remember a story, I made a note of this story, that once when I was about 10, my sister is eight years older than me. So one Yom Kippur, she had to take me home halfway through the day to give me my lunch. Mm -hmm. And my mother had left a pot of chicken soup, but it had gone off. So I tasted the soup and it wasn't right. So I said to my sister, something wrong with this soup? And she said, well, I said, well, taste it. And I wasn't winding her up. And for some reason, I'd forgotten it was Yom Kippur. She thought I was taking the mickey. She didn't say to me, I can't taste the soup, I'm fasting. So this must have gone on for 10 minutes. <laughs> I taste this soup and her saying, no, I'm not going to taste this soup. By the end of it, I thought maybe she's trying to poison me. There is a very famous taste this soup joke, of course, which mm -hmm. we all know, which was then ended up in... Coming Dirty to America. It's also in Dirty Dancing. Is it? I've never noticed it there. I will have to revisit yeah. that. So there you are. Food played a big part in our lives, even though, you know, it was a limited cuisine, but one we enjoy. And Lawrence and I, I can speak for both of us, because we, we live in Gloucestershire, 
you know, quite often we go to London and we say, oh, we could go via Harry Morgan's. You know, it's it, that becomes sometimes becomes the main reason to go. It's a choice between having like a phone call or a meeting if there's a chance of Harry Morgan's and we'll make it into a meeting. Or Selfridges. Selfridges, they do a good sandwich. Rubens. Rubens is funny. We were to give a talk in a synagogue in the East End called Sandy's Row. Yeah, very famous. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we'll go early and go to Rubens for lunch and then go on to Sandy's Row. And when we got to Rubin's, they'd shut. They said there was a, what was it, a death in the family where clothes, they'd already been moved because of a fire that happened. You know that, don't you? Yeah, I remember. That was about 20 years ago. We used yeah. to make jokes that it was that Jewish fire, you know. Yeah, the fire that was going to happen next week. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, Rubens reopened about a month later, but it was a big notice on the wall saying someone's died and we're closing. And it sounds shot. like you were very angry about we that rather than sympathetic. We've driven we're 70 miles from a place of salt beef and we had to suffer. Next time, give me a call and I'll sort you out salt beef sandwiches. <laughs> I think we end up having a kebab in a Turkish restaurant, which is the nearest. It wasn't well, quite the same. <laughs> what about you, Lawrence? Have you got any exciting Jewish food <laughs> memories to share with us? Well, I'm going to return to tragedy and my upbringing here. My parents, without telling me, went on holiday. How old were you? I was 16, seven, 16 17. I thought you were going to say you were six, and I thought no, I could do that I'm to a, my kid. I'm, a, I'm sitting at breakfast with them, and I go off to school. When I come home, I can't get in. Everything's locked up. And I'm told by the neighbour, who I later learned had a key, that all my clothes had been taken, books and everything had been taken to my auntie's, and I'll be living there for the next fortnight whilst they're on holiday. Anyway, I got in the house, and I thought, I'll just live here on my own, because it's going to be the most peaceful fortnight I've ever had. And then I thought about food, what can I have? So on my way home from school, I stopped in what was then a sort of embryonic supermarket, and bought a dish that I'd seen advertised much on television called Vesta Chow Mein. It was like a boil-in-the-bag Chinese meal. So I went into the kitchen, cut the box open, got the sachet out, followed instructions and cooked myself my first Chinese meal. Two weeks later, my parents come home from holiday. I'm in the flat and immediately she walked through the door. She went, I said, what's the matter? She said, what have you been doing in my kitchen? I said, I haven't been doing anything. So she immediately went to the dustbin to look in the dustbin. There was nothing there. She was sniffing around the kitchen in an exaggerated manner, going, what have you done in my kitchen, my kosher kitchen? What have you done? This went on and on and on. So eventually I said, look, two days after you went away, I bought a box of Vesta chow mein and I cooked it. She said not a word. She got a black plastic bin liner. She got all the cutlery and threw it into the bin liner. She then went through the cupboards and smashed every piece of crockery in the kitchen. She never again went in that kitchen. And six months later, she died. And as the coffin was being taken from my sitting room out into the hall, out to the hearse waiting in the forecourt of the council block in which we lived, one of her best friends called Mrs. Bick turned to me and said, Lawrence, you've killed your mother. You're happy now? And the chow mein killed my mother. That's my Jewish food story. I I don't know know the correct response to that at all. (laughs) And then I'd never been to a shiva before in my life. So her shiva, which was really crowded, I mean, there were lots of people. She was the chairwoman of a Jewish 
what would you call it, almost a bad Jewish girls' home, girls that had done wrong, and she was the chair of that. So they all came to the shiver. So the place was packed. We only lived in the council flat, and it was a small room. But I remember just after I was being praised for killing my mother by her best friend, my father kept saying to me, put a suit on, put a suit on, wear a tie, for God's sake, show some respect for your mother. So I put on my best tie, my best suit. The rabbi comes straight up to me, lifts the tie up, cuts it. Then he cuts my sweater. So the only decent sweater and tie I had are demolished by this rabbi. And I thought, you know, this is crazy. It's a designated schmatter cutter, isn't it? That the United Synagogue sends around with a pinky shear. <laughs> and then we had to sit for four or five days on these very uncomfortable seats. I think that's left a lasting impression on me because I'm rather fanatical about chairs. I've had a few times where, like a day later, I've regretted a Chinese takeaway. <laughs> that was long life, chow mein. Um, Have you ever no. eaten chow mein again? Yeah, I like chow mein. It brings back happy memories. <laughs> of the before times, I'm assuming. I'm not actually that keen on Chinese food, and I don't know whether that's unconsciously due to the fact it killed my mother. But there you go. So she was dead. And suddenly, both my father and I learned to cook what we liked in the kitchen. Or he did. I didn't cook. I think when Mrs. Bick leant over to you and said, you killed your mother, are you happy now? You should have offered her a spring roll from the buffet. When I was a teenager, if I met anyone from North London and I told them I'm from Chigwell, they virtually always called me Dorian. And I always felt like she and I were more than birds of a feather. We must have been like sisters <laughs> separated at birth because it was the first thing out of everybody's mouth. If you think about the idea of six degrees of can't eat bacon, other than the four of us, who is your most interesting Jewish connection, Morris? Well, I thought about this and I suppose I'll go for Michael Grade because... Lord I, Grade? Lord Michael Grade of, of Yarmouth who we've known since 1980 and who was one of the midwives of our career and who we've always maintained very affable connection with all over these years. There was a time in our careers where you take certain things for granted. Like one thing I took for granted was that you know, when Michael Grade became managing director of BBC television, there was a big football match on and I got the newspaper out thinking, oh, there'll be a highlights package at half past 10 on midweek match of the day. And I looked at it, there was no football on. It was a very important match. I can't think who it was, but it was an important match. So I phoned Michael Grade up and I said, Marcus Morris here, why isn't Manchester United versus Benfica on television tonight? And he said, isn't it? I said, hang on a second, I'll call you back. And then he called me back and said, it is. That's raw power. <laughs> it didn't cross my mind not to ask it. So that was good. Where's your six degrees? <laughs> you know, the trouble is, in this country, it's hard to get six degrees from anybody, Jew or Gentile. The, the connections are, are so tight. It'd be hard-pressed for me to find a Jew that took me six degrees to get to. I love that story that you just phoned Michael Grade up, Lord Michael Grade of Yarmouth, in order to change the schedule for yeah. television that evening because if we ever want to try and convince people that Jews don't control the media that is a terrible <laughs> example it does occur to me that I should keep that quiet uh, to be fair Lawrence and I know at least eight or ten members of the House of Lords quite well and only two of them are Jewish so I think that balances it out 
Oh, Rachel, what could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind listeners that back episodes of the podcast are available on all the usual platforms, as well as our own website, JewTalkingToMe.com. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and leave a lovely review. It's what your mother would want. And we'd love to hear whether you have your very own six degrees of can't eat bacon that connect you to an interesting Jew. Tell us who it is on social media at Jew Talking without the G. And now back to the show. When you asked that question, I actually sat down and worked out a really good line. Lawrence has got a much more interesting one than me. It didn't really involve Jews so much as Nazis, you see. Is that allowed on Jew talking? Get four Jews together, they'll end up talking about the Nazis eventually. Well, I'm going to tell you. My wife's grandfather was a general in the Kaiser's army. So we've gone from her grandfather, von Rechberg, to the Kaiser. The Kaiser was exiled to Belgium, where he became very good friends with Hermann Goering, third stage. Hermann Goering was a founder member of the Nazi party and great ally of Hitler, fourth one. And Hitler's foreign minister was Joachim von Ribbentrop, who at the end of the war was tried as one of the leading Nazis at Nuremberg. And whilst waiting for execution, an American stole his watch in the cell. And I've got his watch. Whoa. I mean, that is... That's amazing, but you've missed a step. How did you get the watch? Well, I got the watch. Morris and I were in Hollywood, working in Hollywood. And one afternoon, we were walking down Melrose Avenue, and there was what they call, I think, estate watches. Like, we'd call them secondhand watches. And there was this really nice watch in the window. I mean, it wasn't a flash watch. It was a gold watch. And I thought, oh, what lovely face that watch has got. I'll go in and see how much it costs. Now, I don't know what it cost. It cost something like $200, $180. And I bought it because I thought it would cheer me up because I was feeling a bit depressed. The story of what happened next was a play we wrote called Von Ribbentrop's Watch. So I bought the watch and later when the watch went wrong and I took it to a Jewish watchmaker, he said, I've repaired your watch. Can I ask you, is it a family heirloom? And I said, no, I I just bought it in a shop in Los Angeles. He said, come in and I want to show you something. And he took the back of the watch and there was a swastika with JVR engraved. And I said, who's that? He said, I've got no idea. But if you're really interested, take the watch to Sotheby's watch and clocks department and they might be able to tell you. And that's how we discovered it belonged to Bomb Ribbentrop and was stolen. And I own it. But there's a further story when I said to Morris, I've got this watch and it's now worth 50, 60,000 pounds because there's Nazis all over the world that would give their, well, give a Jew's right arm, I suppose you'd say, for this watch. And he said, you can't sell it because then you'd be guilty of having Nazi money. And I said, yeah, but I mean, so he said, no, you can't sell it. Like, All right, he's right. I can't sell it. But what if I sell it and donate the 60,000 quid to a Jewish charity? And he said, they'd never take it when you told them where the money came from. So I said, well, a shawl must need a community hall. You know, I'd give them the 60 grand and say, could you just call it after the person whose watch it belonged to, like the Von Ribbentrop <laughs> Hall? But he said, no, you can't do that. But what you can do is write a play. And that's what we did. We wrote the play and it was, you know, really well received. And uh, of course, the fact I had the watch aroused much publicity in the national press. But that's my six movements from wife's grandfather to the watch. That's an amazing story. I'm the only Jew it includes, but 
The fact is, before the play was premiered in Oxford, there was a dinner for, the, I think, the sponsors of the theatre. And Morris and I were asked to come along as guests of the theatre and speak after the dinner. And we stood up and told them a little bit about the play and how this watch belonged to Ron, Von Ribbentrop. And, and, and the Daily Mail even found a photograph of him wearing it because he wore it on his left arm. And, of course, he saluted with his right arm. So you could never see his sleeve rise. But when they invaded Paris, he and Hitler were on some balcony and he had a pair of binoculars, so like that, so you saw the watch. Anyway, so Morris spoke and then I spoke and we spoke a little about the genesis of this play. And then I said, quite casually, I suppose, although dramatically as it turned out, and I happened to have the very watch on my left wrist. And there was an audible gasp around the room of these Oxford academics, theatricals, Famous, but I remember one of them was Roger Bannister, uh, the athlete. He ran a mile. He did. <laughs> um, and I took, the, I took the watch off and passed it round. And there you are. So is that the watch you're wearing now that you just no, showed us? No, no. no, I've got it. Put Von Ribbentrop's watch in Google and you'll get so much about it. I'm just having a look and I can see there is a Jewish connection, obviously, because it's, a, I believe, a radio play. Yes. It have, did have Jews in it. So oh, yeah. there's a Jewish connection. It was, so it, all about, it was all about Seder night. It was a radio play that we then made, made into a stage play. What happened was we wanted to write it as a stage play. And when BBC Radio 4 invited us very kindly to write a play, we said, well, we'd like to do this as a as a test bed for, for a stage play. And we needed a longer slot than they normally would give you on a Saturday afternoon. And we got this That's longer because he was Jewish, you see. Another Jewish connection. The controller of Radio 4 was a man called Mark Damaza. And he was t completely taken with the fact that Von Ribbentrop's hanged and we're still around. It would have been exciting if when Philip asked you, Lawrence, are you wearing the watch? You said no, but then Morris slowly raised his hand yeah. and we saw it on his wrist. Amazing drama. Not for not for a <laughs> audio podcast, but it would have been exciting for us. That's where it's gone. So I still got the watch. I didn't sell it because Morris said you couldn't take money. From I'm, his, I'm his moral compass, you see. Morris and I could tell you lots of very funny Nazi stories because we were asked to write Hitler's Diary and we met the guy who wrote Hitler's Diary in Stutt near Stuttgart. And um, he, well, he gave Morris and me a letter from Hitler, a personalised letter from Hitler, which is now very valuable in his handwriting. But when this guy in Burford knew I had a letter from Hitler written to my father, because that's what it said, it was like the Holy Writ. He couldn't touch it. It was too important. You guys know anything about the Hitler diaries? Otherwise, nothing Lawrence said for the last five minutes would make any sense to you whatsoever. No. This was a guy who forged the Hitler diaries. Not as fascinating as all that, Lawrence. I find it rather... <laughs> Sorry for taking this Jewish podcast off in a Nazi direction. Well, you won't let it go. Shut up. Ask us another question. What I'm fascinated by, because you talked about some of the stuff you've been writing and working on, and you also mentioned earlier that a lot of your growing up life experiences have fed into your work. And I'm curious to know if there are examples of that you can share with us of things that have appeared on either stage, screen, radio, where it's a direct connection to your Jewish childhood or your Jewish background. Well, Morris has the best story of all because he can talk about Dorian, which Rachel will appreciate greatly. Well, there's a combination of things. I mean, Lawrence and I both own a bit of Dorian because when we wrote Birds of a Feather, 
created, as the terminology is these days. The reason we set it in Chigwell was because a policeman told us that a huge number of houses in Chigwell were bought for cash by people who didn't want mortgages. Know what I mean? And so <laughs> we decided that they would live in Chigwell. And then we decided, because the subject matter could get quite serious, it was, after all, about women whose husbands were in prison, so we needed a funny neighbour. So as it was Chigwell, we decided to have uh, a Jewish neighbour. And we called her Dorian because Lawrence had met someone from Manchester called Dorian, the most unusual name for a woman. Not that she was particularly like Dorian in other respects, although when she was single in the 60s, she had been quite familiar with quite a few pop stars, so the story goes. I was going out for a brief while with a very nice woman who, again, was nothing like Dorian, except that she had the most incredible fingernails. And she was the first person I ever knew who seemed to spend every other day having her nails done at a time when that was quite unusual. So Dorian inherited her nails. But Dorian's antics were based on someone who worked with some friends of mine who led the most extraordinary, let's say, romantic life. And they used to pass on these stories to me. And and we used to have to water them down before they could go into the show. Eventually, after a season or two of Birds of a Feather, the lady in question sort of realised what was happening and forbade them to pass any more juicy tidbits on, which is a great, great shame. <laughs> on, a, on a slightly more respectable level, I mean, I suppose it's true that Sean and Harvey Moon drew a great deal from both of our families, Rita Moon, Harvey's estranged wife, was very much based on Lawrence's Auntie Miri, who had what could be called a good war in terms of entertaining the troops. And when we got to season three, I think, of, of Harvey Moon, when they'd been bombed out of their home by an unexploded bomb, they went to live in a house in Finsbury Park, which was based pretty much on the house I grew up in. And the landlord was based very, very much my father, who was one of those very, very, very worried men. He was a very good man. You know, no one would say a bad word about him, but he was a terrible, terrible warrior. The woes of the world on his shoulders. And so he became Eric. He became the landlord. But much of what we've written really had... Jewish feeling. We wrote a series called So You Think You've Got Troubles, where Warren Mitchell played a Jew sent over to Northern Ireland to manage a factory there that was stuck right in the middle of sectarian factory life. That was really good. I enjoyed that. We did Wall of Silence, a serious film about a murder in a Hasidic community where the police couldn't get inside to investigate because they just closed ranks. We had lots of fun with that because we were really badly condemned for that. And the rabbi, for reasons only he would know, having been invited to the press show, decided to come to it. Having bad-mouthed Morris and I throughout the preparation of this film, I walked over to him and I said, have you ever been to a press show before? And he said, no, of course not. So I said, have you ever watched television before? He said, no. I said, you don't have one. He said, having a television would be like having a sewer running through my living room. I think in wherever it was 25 years ago, calling television like a sewer in your front room was a bit of an exaggeration, but now I'm not completely sure he was wrong. So that was that. So other work, like we decided to create a Jewish female rabbi in Love Hurts. We thought that would be really very interesting 
the life of a, a female rabbi then. So much of our work, Dorian aside, has really been drawn, if not consciously, then unconsciously, from those Jewish years, what I call Jewish years because they are very much in the past, and people we knew or bits of people we knew and always found a good home in our series. And of course, the lesson we learned very early on in our career was that if you wrote a series about a Jewish family, nobody wanted to watch it then. If you put a Jew in another series, they would become the most popular character. And I could never understand why. So when Frida in Harvey Moon became hugely popular, Dorian, of course, became a gay icon. When we went on stage, there were rows and rows of men. And when she came on the stage, they just swooned. We never set out to do that, of course. And then other series, I don't think we, we used a Jew once in Goodnight Sweetheart, and we used a Jew once in The New Statesman. But I think the other series... That um, phrase Lawrence used, a Jew. We did use a Jew. <laughs> but we never abused a Jew. <laughs> Certainly. It's interesting on the Jewish front, only once we had, um, not a bad review, but a sort of very sort of sniffy review about Shine on Harvey Moon from a critic who had convinced himself that Harvey Moon himself and his immediate family were supposed to be Jewish, which they weren't, and therefore could accuse us of miscasting them and because they didn't look or sound Jewish. And they said, well, they, they weren't supposed to be. I don't know whether there was a presumption that everything we wrote would be Jewish, but I think probably we've tried and more or less succeeded in having, you know, Jewish characters in our shows in a natural way as part of the wider community. It's funny because when Philip and I were chatting about you coming on, I don't know if you remember, Philip, that I think you said to me that you felt that Goodnight Sweetheart had a really Jewish flavour. I'm in fanboy mode right now because just growing up, my dad and I used to love Goodnight Sweetheart. It was something we'd watch together as one of our favorites so even just having this conversation is just very exciting for me but it felt very familiar it felt like a family jewish kind of sitcom without it being in any way a jewish sitcom but i think maybe in your writing what comes across is that you know the family bit the fact that there's a pub and there's their generations living under the same roof and even things like the ongoing joke about whenever anyone swore the guy that stood up and went that lady's present just the the clean cut element of of something that was effectively a show about a time traveling adulterer yeah. <laughs> because of all our shows all our of our most successful shows that's the one which is a least overtly jewish there was a jewish arp warden in it in a couple of episodes but it was the least overtly jewish show but as i've observed elsewhere i think that the rhythm of comedy is the rhythm of the prayer book. It's also, as it happens, the rhythm of Shakespeare that you govern in iambic pentameters. You know, da 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 da, and that's the that's the that's the rhythm of Shakespeare. That's the rhythm of humour. If you tell a joke and you get the rhythm wrong, it's no longer a joke. True. And I think that rhythm goes through all our work. Mm. Yeah. You know, I always compare it to jazz. There's so many beats in a bar, and you know where to go up, and you know where to go down. And that's why the black jazz players and the Jewish composers work so well together. And also, very much like jazz, it's not what your Jewish mother says, it's what your Jewish mother doesn't say. Well, that's nearly all we've got time for, but how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call, you don't write? Normally, we'd allocate 20 seconds to do this, but for you... 
30. Well, we do write, and we've just written a book. <laughs> and the book is called Shooting the Pilot. And it comes out, I believe, in the late spring, early summer. And it's seven pilot scripts, seven first episodes, each preceded by an essay of how the shows came to be. And there's one unpublished script in there. It's got a foreword by David Renwick, who wrote One Foot in the Grave amongst much else. And uh, we're looking forward to it enormously because it's a new venture for us. We've never written a, a book from scratch together. So we do write, we don't call. Um, <laughs> Covid permitting, we're going to do some live performances. Well, not performances. We're not going to perform the book. But we're going to do some PAs in the autumn. Theatre tour, really. Theatre tour, but I don't want to over. It's a tour. It's a tour of little rooms behind libraries. I don't want to oversell it. Um, it's a theatre tour in the autumn. If you still want to hear more about us, you can visit our website, which is marksandgram.com. It's got lots of stuff about us. I often look it up to find out who I am. <laughs> and we also tweet as at marksandgram. There you go. But above all else, you'll be pleased to know, Philip, is that we're hoping that when the theatres reopen, that Goodnight Sweetheart the musical will appear i am very that, excited to hear that. that we that was something we were very near achieving when someone ate a bat have we just had an exclusive is this breaking news you're the first jewish podcast to have it <laughs> <laughs> it's a jewish exclusive yeah. that is very so that, very we're exciting will come on, if not this year then certainly next it seems judging by the emails we receive and everything else there's a worldwide audience for good night sweetheart so to have a musical will be just terrific and uh, i look forward to the first night enormously as you will i do i look forward to the first night i will welcome you into my dressing room and thank you for writing a part <laughs> especially <laughs> for uh, a non-east end jew absolutely loved this and from now on I'll always think of Morris as the Jew who had the ear of the man who really controlled the media and Lawrence as the Jew to refuse if they ever offer you a plate of chow mein and okay. Marks and Gran as a Jews who gave us an exclusive. Ah, an exclusive, very good. That's great. And as my grandmother used to say when she wanted to end my telephone calls, you must have better things to do than talk to me. And you must have better things to do than talk to us, which is a good thing as sadly we have come to the end of this week's show. We'd like to thank our wonderful guests, Lawrence Marks and Morris Gran. Follow them on social media. Follow us on social media at Jew Talking without the G. Don't forget to find Jew Talking to Me wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, like and share with everyone you know. And join us next time on Jew Talking to Me. You Talking To Me was hosted by me, Philip Simon. And me, Rachel Krieger. It was produced by Russell Balkin. Philip, if you could just do Morris, what kind of Jew are you? Morris, what kind of Jew are you? Could you just do that again, putting so at the beginning of the sentence? Yeah. <laughs> so, so Morris, what kind of Jew are you? <laughs> Showing enough. I'd like to say it's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> we won't force you.